Welcome to the Jess Larson Show on innovation and leadership. Today on the show, we've got Jason Turbo. Jason, thanks for doing this. Great to be here, Jess. Thanks for having me. So uh, I'm interested. You've done some pretty interesting things in life. How do you introduce yourself to people? It depends who I'm talking to and what kind of cocktail party I'm at. Um, I start with, I'm a journalist. Sometimes I follow that with, I'm a sports writer. Occasionally, I'll, I'll, I'll delve into the, the non-sports stuff, but the sports stuff, especially at cocktail parties, tends to take me the, the furthest. Yeah. Um, can you, can you give us just a quick overview on the journalism side and, and what, which books they are? Like, give us like a title and a synopsis quick. And then I've got a whole bunch of questions. Whew. All right. Um, four books in chronological order. I started with the baseball codes, which was published by random house in 2010 about the unwritten rules of the sport. Um, baseball fans know about this non-baseball fans, um, probably have heard something about the moral code by which players police themselves and each other guys, you know, pimping a home run and then getting hit by a fastball in response, cheating from beyond the field, on the field, sign stealing, all that kind of stuff. Uh, uh, second book was called Dynastic Bombastic Fantastic for Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. That's about the swinging A's dynasty of the early 70s, a team in such constant turmoil that in one of the victorious clubhouses after a game, game seven win over the New York Mets in 1973, the manager actually quit on the spot being able to take no more. But that story runs very deep and very interesting. The third book was about the 1981 Los Angeles Dodgers called They Bled Blue, um, which primarily is about the rise of Fernando Valenzuela and the, yeah, the creation of Fernando Mania. Uh, and my most recent is actually a collaboration with Kenny Loggins on his autobiography for Hachette called uh, Still All Right. Uh, and then on the journalism side, can you talk about Wired and the and covering the Giants and some of those things. Yeah, I mean, I worked for the Chronicle for five years. I ran a team-specific standalone page called Giants Today that ran in conjunction with every every home game. So I was on hand for virtually every home game of Barry Bonds's epic, record-setting, highly controversial run, uh, and and went from there. I, I, quit that job because I started writing books. And, you know, I've, I've had extended runs with Wired Magazine where I was their primary sports blogger at a time when they um, felt the need to employ a sports blogger. Uh, you know, I, I freelance regularly for the likes of the New York Times and Sports Illustrated and whatnot. But but most of my most of my income these days is from books. Okay, that's great. So um, you get to be on interviews. Uh, I'm going to start this off differently. What What do people not ask you that you think they should? Or what do you like to talk about more so than what you get asked about? Man, I, I feel like you're, yeah, yes, you're right. I don't get asked that. Um, and I've never put myself in these shoes before, but the surest way to get a ball player to talk to a reporter is to ask him about his craft, not about his personal life, not about, you know, what were you feeling out there in the field or, or whatnot, but like, what is the function of your job and how do you go about it? They love talking about that. You know, and as, as a baseball nerd, I love to hear it. Unfortunately, so little of our reportage gets to gets to actually home in on that. But I, th I think I really do enjoy talking about the craft itself. Um, I, I, I'll say that at the beginning of the pandemic, I helped start an organization called the Pandemic Baseball Book Club. Um, you know, my I had a number of appearances, my my. Dodgers book, They Bled Blue, had recently come out in paperback. I had a number of appearances on the calendar. It was springtime. They, they, they all got wiped off the map, of course, because the country shut down. 
So myself and some other baseball writers got together and, and began doing these things virtually rather than in bookstores. We did them via Zoom, which until recently, none of us had ever heard about. Um, and it's, it's turned into this big thing. We've got now got close to 100 authors. We've got you know, new books coming in all the time. Uh, the point being, I, I would be running a lot of these interviews with fellow authors. And the consistent comment I would get from them was, wow, no one really wants to ask me about the craft as much as you do. And, and I find it fascinating. Like, I, I love talking about writing with writers. So I guess that's a really long-winded answer to the question. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about this. We're going to take a slight detour first. Are you a baseball player or did you grow up playing baseball? I, I you know, Little League. Um, I didn't even play high school ball. Um, I, I will say, you know, as I've been a professional baseball writer since the mid-90s, um, and I've learned an awful lot about the sport through that. Um, primarily about the history of the sport. For the last, my daughter's now 17, when she was in first grade, she started playing softball and I began coaching her. And then at about the time she quit, my son became old enough to play baseball and I've been coaching him ever since. And I honestly have learned more about baseball through the experience of being a youth coach than I, than I did through decades of being a sports writer. But, but I find they, they balance themselves really nicely because now I can speak historically through, through anecdotes, as well as functionally through, through a pretty firm understanding of, of why things happen and how they happen. No, oh, that's fun. I, uh, I'm a real diehard, like snowmobile access snowboarder, backcountry snowboarder and surfing and skateboarding stuff. But, um, my, my teenage years was constantly doing that, but, um, but uh, without a snowmobile, cause I wasn't rich enough. So we were hiking the mountains when we couldn't, didn't have enough money to go to the resorts. And then doing competitive judo the, the rest of the years. But I did get a couple of years of baseball in. And one year I was the best hitter on a pretty poor team. And the other year I was the worst player on a team that went undefeated through the whole season and through the whole championships. I mean, I was tied for second worst, probably. Yeah. Right. And, uh, but uh, there's something about that sport that, um, I don't know, like I played a lot of basketball, played pickup games of other sports, you know? And there's something different about baseball. Uh, what would you say is different about baseball that none of the other team sports really have? Well, it's, it's not nearly as reactive. You know, anything that happens on a basketball court demands immediate response. Any defense I give you is in response to whatever you're doing in front of me. And the same on a football field. Baseball is very deliberate. Um, there, there's lots of time to sit and kind of think about what you're doing and the strategy you might employ. And for those who don't understand it, it can be very boring. But if you know what to look for on a baseball diamond, if you can recognize, oh, this player's shifting just a couple steps to his left, or this pitcher is actually trying to hit the outside corner against this batter in response to this other thing, it's, it's nonstop. There's always something to think about. And it also, you know, in, in, in benefit to, you know, my, my places, the, I, I was about to say amateur historian, but I'm a professional writer, so it kind of makes me a semi-professional historian. It gives lots of space to, to talk about the sport and the history of the sport in addition to what, what's actually happening on the field. Um, but we need to get back to that whole uh, snowmobile, snowmobile snow, snowboarding thing, because before I was a sports writer, I was a ski instructor in Colorado. Oh, really? So we might have a lot to talk about once we get through all this, this first round of questions. Yeah, yeah. I, I convinced my wife into letting us live, move to a cabin community at 7,000 feet elevation outside of Park City, kind of south, south uh, 
out on the Uinta side so we can still be able to snowboard out the backyard without having to trailer the sleds into the national forest. So oh my gosh. if you're coming through Park City, you might have to go to a backcountry day. I would love it, man. I went, I took my kids to Park City every year for years and years. Um, and it's just, it's just slowly, I mean, stopped with the pandemic and I don't know if it will start again. <laughs> I do do an annual Utah trip every year. And you're out in the Bay Area still? Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, Berkeley. I really want to talk about writing then, if that's what you want to talk about. So I'm in the middle of writing my first book right now. And I am a diehard audiobook fan. Uh, like our listeners know this, but like I've listened to maybe 400 plus books in the Jason Bourne genre, and then maybe 850 to 900 books in kind of like the business philosophy, investing, marketing genre. And I, like, I typically do like three to four books a week kind of a thing. And I love it, uh, like a lot. And uh, I, I'm interested when you think about somebody who is a book enthusiast, but not yet a, uh, an author, what kind of advice do you have people in, in my spot who are genuinely in love with the medium and, uh, but, but haven't really been through the full pain yet? Well, it's the same advice that you would get from, from anybody in my shoes and you know, honestly, much more prominent shoes than my own is if you want to be a writer, you just write, you just do it every day and you never find an excuse not to. Uh, and, and I constantly refer to a quote from uh, the immortal Studs Terkel, whose, whose advice for getting through writer's block is you just sit there at your keyboard until small drops of blood appear on your forehead. <laughs> I love it. Uh, I am doing a mix of some writing and some talking and recording and having my assistant transcribe it and then have me revisit it because I'm a better yapper than writer. But uh, uh, I'm interested, you know, over these years. So how long have you been writing professionally? Almost since I graduated college in the early 90s. I got my first newspaper job in 1994. Okay. So basically 30 years-ish coming up on it. Yeah. When you think about the craft today, what are the nuances that you couldn't have learned other than actually doing it for almost 30 years here? Really the, the biggest thing for me, um, especially as I see young reporters come on the scene, um, is, is the art of interviewing, which I'm sure you've gotten quite good at yourself. Um, the ability to turn a series of questions into an actual conversation with the understanding that the majority of the good material you will elicit from a subject is not going to come in a direct response to a question, but in a back and forth conversation you end up having with, you know, a, a 17th level question down that you never anticipated ever asked. When you think about this, to me, it's like a balance beam of, of trying to get down. I like, I call it like excavating down to the gold. Okay. Um, when you think about this idea of like pushing enough, taking enough of a risk of, of potentially making them uncomfortable or potentially getting enough resistance that you actually get down to the gold versus the idea of like being respectful and treating them like a human being, not, uh, not just someone who can give me some gold. When you think about navigating that, maybe you don't think about it in those terms, but if you did, do you have any advice for navigating that balance beam? Yeah, well, I think there's never a reason to not treat somebody respectfully. I mean, even if they're not being respectful to you, I mean, you're, you're the person asking them for their time. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's a basic of interviewing is you save the harder questions for later. 
So at the very least, you'll have something to walk away with. But it also, you know, it's nice to kind of soften somebody up, build some rapport, um, get them to trust you. And and you should be trustworthy anyway. I mean, anybody who's out to get somebody is, you know, has ulterior motives. Um, but asking the hard questions doesn't necessarily have to be difficult. You know, I, I've, I, I put it to my subjects uh, like this, you know, I've, I've, I've got to tell this story. And if I'm not, if I, if I omit this portion of it, I won't be doing a service to my readers. And I would love to get your take on it. I know, I know it's difficult for you. I know you might not come off looking so well, but without your opinion, without your angle, I'm going to have to go with everybody else's side of the story. I would love to get yours as well. And, and that, I mean, that usually does the trick. Not, not always, but even when people continue to decline to address the subject with me, it, it continues to be respectful. And I've never had an interview end because of that. Oh, that's great advice. Um, so I was listening to some of your other interviews and you're talking about your back and forth with Kenny Loggins and kind of the, you know, the nuances of a collaboration where it's a, it's a autobiography and not necessarily the same level of fact checking or some of these kind of things. But yeah. you also talked about this idea of like getting so deep into things that like, you know, a lot of, a bunch of emotions came out and, and like he said, it was like, I think, I think uh, his quote was, it was part interrogation, part therapy. Is that fair? Yeah. Uh, part therapy, part deposition. Deposition. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah. And he said that to me like in person over and over long before the book came out, before he was telling <laughs> it to interviewers. Um, yeah. I, I think he's, he's right. And you know, I, he didn't mean it as an insult. I mean, the deposition part was, you know, him telling me a bunch of things one day, me doing my due diligence and trying to fact check as best I can, coming back to him the next day and saying, actually, this thing you said couldn't be accurate. And here's why, based on, you know, whatever timeline of events or, you know, over and over, like I would tell him, like, I don't think this guy said that thing you said. He told me he said it might have been this other person. So it felt like a deposition to him. And, you know, he's, He's he's in his seventies. We're talking about things that happened literally fifty years ago. Like, of course, he's not going to remember them verbatim and exactly. Um, and and then the therapy part is, man, we we got deep. They, the rule of thumb that I learned is that you know eighty percent of your reporting will never end up in the final draft. Right? You've got you've got to do a lot of um, research and a lot of a lot of talking to get to you know what you just referred to as the goal. Um, and and we did that, man. We we got really really deep. There. There were tears shed on, on many occasions. Um, and, and then we put our heads together to figure out like how to shape it that, you know, wouldn't mostly that wouldn't betray other people's confidences. That was his biggest concern. Um, he was, he was very comfortable kind of going in deep on himself. Uh, and, and, you know, we worked it all out. Oh, that's exciting. Um, you know, for maybe some of our younger watchers on YouTube here or listening on their, on their phone or something today. People don't know just how big a deal Kenny Loggins was, especially like the 80s. Can you list off some of like his biggest accomplishments? Well, I mean, he's known primarily as like the king of the movie soundtrack from the 80s. Uh, he, he wrote Still All Right from Caddyshack, followed that up with Footloose from Footloose, followed that up with Danger Zone and Playing with the Boys from Top Gun, um, had a number of, you know, smaller movie soundtrack hits over the next 10 years. But, but those, those three or four and cemented him in, in, in the Pantheon as kind of 80s hit single guy. Even though he had a long career, it started in 1972, and he was like album rock guy with Loggins and Messina, with songs like Danny's Song, 
know, even though we ain't got money, I'm so in love with you. I need that one. And a number of hits that people recognize, even if they don't um, automatically attribute them to to Kenny. Yeah. Hasn't he sold like over like 25 million albums? And like, he's got huge numbers, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know the number, but that certainly wouldn't surprise. Me. You know, we, um, we got to go film a thing with him five years ago when he was at, uh, our, our one partner, Lindsay, was doing a thing at Sundance and had him come speak. And so we came and filmed it. And he was just like a really generous, like nice human being. Yeah. One thing I've learned, I mean, the benefit of, of being a sports writer is I talk to lots and lots of people all the time. And I, I usually find that that people's reputations are accurate, right? The people who are supposed to be self-centered are self-centered and the jerks are jerks. And, you know, if you're supposed to be a nice guy, you end up being a nice guy. And Kenny, from like my earliest research, like the, the clips people were writing about him in the in the early 70s are like, you know, what a nice guy. I mean, not that Jim Messina wasn't a nice guy, but, you know, he was very professional and a little bit standoffish and closed. Um, and Kenny was just this open, bubbly fellow. And then that's exactly what I found. Well, and just like, you know, like our creative director, Rex, you, Rex texted me this morning, the picture of him and Kenny together. And like, he had a long day and it was late and he's still making time for things like that. And uh, we really liked his story about the, uh, about that song you were just singing, writing it for his nephew, you know, about his brother and what he, you know, I don't think people know that he wrote that when he was like still in high school or something. Is that right? Yeah. He wrote his two, two of his biggest hits, those certainly pre-movie territory, that and House at Pooh Corner when he was a 17 year old high school senior. And uh, yeah, the, the, the one we're talking about came almost verbatim from a letter his brother Danny sent him telling him that informing him that he was going to have a, a son and and how excited he was and and you Kenny wrote a song about it that's so fun so when you think about this craft of being a great interviewer you know here you are moving out of sports expanding you know and a slightly different format where it's autobiography uh how did that change your approach or, or what was that like doing that for the first time it's it's much easier in one maybe more than one key way which is there is 0% chance of an adversarial relationship, right? There's, you know, I, I don't like the phrase gotcha question, but we were talking about asking the tough questions before. I mean, this is Kenny's name on his book. So he knows that anything he says, you know, is off the record until he decides it's on the record, which, yeah. is, which is actually, I mean, I find this to be useful. I make that offer to virtually everybody I interview, like just to, to put them at ease. Like it's all off the record. If in retrospect, you decide, you know, I'd rather not have said that. Just let me know and, and we'll strike it. Like that makes it easy. Um, and and I, I do find that that loosens people up. I have almost never encountered somebody who's done it, which is <laughs> an additional benefit. But, you know, Kenny, Kenny had the extra layer of getting to review the manuscript before before it went to press. And in this case, he had the, the ability to review it many, many times, which she and I did together. Um, so he spoke very, very freely. And that, I mean, that's really a boon. And I could go back and ask the follow-up questions two, three, four times in a way that I never would be able to um, with you know, a, a third-party subject. Like, hi, it's me again. I want to ask you about that same thing we've talked about four times already. Doesn't really go over so well unless you're you're really in deep with them. Yeah. So I'm, I'm interested, you know, you, you had a very strong professional career before starting that project. What skills do you feel like it added to your tool belt? One thing that I really worked on diligently, and Kenny, boy, did Kenny help with this because he had a vested interest, was making sure 
it was in his voice. It sounded like him. Um, and we, we had a lot of meetings about that. I would, I would put together a passage and he would completely rewrite it. Um, and while Kenny is actually a, a good writer, but he is not a good, he's, he's not good with making things concise and focused, right? So he would rewrite it. Um, and while the story itself spans a month, his rewriting would, would take us 10 years into the future. And I'd have to parse it all out and tell him why it didn't work and put it back together in a different way that usually was very similar to the way I'd handed it to him in the first place. And then we'd go over it together. And um, our, our last run through with the entire manuscript was him reading it out loud to me. Um, he was concerned he knew he'd be narrating the audiobook, So that was part of his motivation. But, but the real benefit for me was he'd stop all the time and say, actually, that just is not sounding like me. And we'd go through it and we'd, we'd figure out how to make it sound more like him while still be cohesive, while still, you know, make sense um, and be concise. Uh, and, and a lot of that process led to new copy entirely. Like he'd say, you know, that, that portion is good, but I think we could do it better. And then we talk through it and he'd give some ideas and I'd give some ideas. And I knew it was working when we'd go, when we take another pass and I'd have no idea if a given line was Kenny's or if it was mine. And I think I, th I can, I can say that for a lot of the book, which, which is you know, ultimately I think beneficial to everybody. No, that's awesome. Uh, so I'm interested having been through that experience, when you go back and do sports writing, is there any different perspective you're bringing to it? Or do you, do you how do you feel like that this process benefited your sports writing? I, I don't know if it did, honestly. Um, yeah. You know, I mentioned I mentioned that it was easier, and in one way was was that the interview subject um, is is inevitably more open. The other way it was easier is that I didn't need as much due diligence. Like when I when I'm reporting a story as you know the, the impartial journalist, I've, I've got to fact check a lot of things, right? So I you know I, I I my book Dynastic Bombastic Fantastic. I'm talking to all these sixty year olds about things that happened in the 1970s. And I'm getting great stories. Like one reason I really like that book is those players were so amazingly open with everything that happened. Um, so for example, I, I, I have a, a, a really fun passage about a clubhouse fight Reggie Jackson got into in Arlington, Texas with, uh, with Mike Epstein in 1972. Mike Epstein was a first baseman who had played fullback on the Cal football team. He was a giant man. Um, and I'll go into the details of this if you'd like, but I got six or seven or eight versions of what went down from eyewitnesses, none of which were the same. <laughs> At which point you think like, obviously nobody's lying. I mean, they're, they're all recounting it as they've been recounting it for literally decades. Um, but they're at the same time, they're obviously not all correct. So, you know, I've just got to kind of collect the, the commonalities among them, them together and figure out what is as the most likely could have been true. And I left an awful lot on in the editing room floor just because there was no way to corroborate it. Um, so it's, it's much more difficult. And if this was just in Kenny's first, first voice, it's, this is the way I remember it. And I, you know, it all goes in, right? So, so in, in that way, yeah. L let's talk about this. First, tell us, piecing all those together, tell us what you actually think happened and how you crafted that to be as close to what you think happened as, you know, Tell us what you think happened and then tell us how you crafted it that way. Well, what happened was they go to Texas. It's fairly early in the season. Mike Epstein is new to the team. Um, 
he's a Jewish ball player, which which is pertinent in ways that you'll see in a moment. Um, and in Arlington, they have two pass lists. Players are allowed to leave passes for their guests. There is the the blue list for family and friend family, and then the white list for friends. And the family seats are down low. They're really nice. You get four of them. The friend seats are a little less nice. You only get two of them. Well, Mike Epstein wanted to leave passes for friends of his family. The guy's name will never be his name was Sherman Berman. And, and Epstein wanted to leave him four passes. And to do that, he had to use the family list, not the friend list, um, which is not unusual. Like no one, you know, no one would take exception to it um, except Reggie Jackson. Reggie walks by the table where these lists are. He looks down, down the, fam the family list, says, Sherman Berman, who put down for these? And Epstein across the room says, I did. Reggie, with the immortal phrase, there ain't no Jews in Texas, crosses the names off the list. At which point Epstein gets up, flies across the room, tackles Reggie to the floor, and as best I understand, starts choking the life out of him. And it takes three or four guys to get Epstein off of Reggie Jackson. Um, you know, some of the players were, were completely fine with the way that was playing out. Um, not everyone loved Reggie, but many of those players had been with Reggie since the minor leagues. And they understood that as brash as he was, um, he was all bark and no bite, right? He, he was annoying, but he was not nefarious. Um, Epstein had, had only recently met him while joining the team and did not understand that. And, uh, beat the snot out of him. Um, at some point, the manager comes running out. There's you know, three or four guys trying to pull Epstein off Reggie. One of them succeeds by choking him off. Epstein is sitting on the guy who pulled him off on one side of the room. Reggie's on the other side of the room. Um, the manager gets mad at all three of the guys, Reggie, Epstein, and the guy who had gotten Epstein off of him, um, brings him into his office. And it takes a lot of coercion before the third guy, catcher Gene Tennis, can convince the manager, actually, Without me, you wouldn't have a right fielder. Um, he gets off the, when he opens the door to leave the office, the entire team is, is standing there with, with their ears up against the door like that. Um, so I've got lots of people telling me this story and nobody on that team is a better storyteller than G-Tex. That guy can spin a yarn. I spent hours and hours and hours with him. Every minute of it was just delightful. Um, unfortunately, I think one of the reasons he's such a good storyteller is that not everything he said happened quite the way he said it. So, so much of his recounting of that tale did not make it into the final, the final cut. Cause I, I, I had to corroborate with, you know, any of the five or six other guys who were more or less just watching. Um, and it makes me sad. I kind of, kind of like the editor's cut caveat, like a lot of this might not have happened, but here it is. But that's, that's not really the way that project worked. So, so talk to me about navigating those conflicting stories and your choice as the writer of how you're going to make the call on what makes the cut or not. For that, because there was no supporting evidence or no newspaper accounts of it, of those particular details, um, it was all in my notes. And, and I, I really stuck to the details that I heard from more than one player. I mean, ideally more than two or three players, but at the very least, at least two. Um, the only time I veered off of that course was for color. You know, if I, if someone noted something in the background that didn't really pertain to the, the outcome of the event, I, I would use that to, to help, you know, shade inside the lines. Um, but, but yeah, no, I, I, my goal in everything I do is to tell the truth 
as closely as I can. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, taking a liberty, even, even a, a good one at the, in, in, an endeavor to tell a good story is, is not really worth it to me. So l let's shift gears again, then thinking about writing for Wired, I mean, you're covering sports, but now you're in Wired. How do you adjust? How do you, how do you level set for this is the same, but maybe slightly different? Yeah. I mean, Wired, Wired was a different kind of beast. I'm just got to have to think about when that even was. Um, it was, it was primarily research-based. Um, you know, the, the Olympics were coming up. And so I, I started just researching like mad about, um, classic Olympic stories that people hadn't heard. You know, I, I remember writing about General George Patton, who was an Olympian in 1912, I believe, um, you know, the, the modern, the pentathlon, which God, I didn't know any of this until I started doing the writing and it's been a long time since I wrote it. So, so forgive me if, if the details are fuzzy, but the pentathlon is built to resemble a military attack. It involves somebody riding in on a horseback and wielding a sword and dropping behind enemy lines, swimming behind enemy lines. There's, there's all kinds of details that are cursorily related to, to warfare. And the, the, it still exists. Um, and, and George Patton competed before he was a general um, using his, his military-issued firearm, of all things. Uh, and, and things like that, where I, I really just, you know, on my computer, just dug deep and, and found what I could. And there was occasional things like um, helmets for big league pitchers, you know, comebackers bouncing off a guy's heads could lead to fatalities and have led to fatalities at, at levels you know, below the major leagues. Um, and there was, there was a, a movement to integrate them when I was writing. And so, you know, I, I did some firsthand research for things like that, but mostly it was, it was just reading and reading and reading and reading, which is kind of up my alley. Like it's, it's one reason I like doing historical books, um, more than I like contemporaneous books. Although I do love going to the ballpark and writing up a game story. It's a nice palate cleanser. That's uh, sure. Um, so let's talk about this for a second. Um, what advice do you have or what observations do you have about the business side of working with magazines versus newspaper versus books versus other forms of writing? What's an insight of being on the inside of, you know, major business publication like that, that maybe people who haven't done it wouldn't know? I think it's mostly about getting in and, and making the right contacts. Um, a, clear and clean pitch letter, unless you have a contact anyway, who you could just call and bounce an idea off of. That's obviously the best way to do it. Um, but a, a, a really concise pitch saying, Hey, are you interested in this? If you are, I'd love to tell you more has, has done wonders for me. It's like I've, I've made a number of contacts at publications where I didn't know anybody. Um, and then once you know somebody, it's, it's much easier to go back and and again to that. Well, and also to meet people at other publications. And when they say, you know what, I, I don't want that story this time, you can always say, any ideas about who I can send it to? And that works well too. So reporters get, in my, in my observation, get endless bad pitches of self-promotion. How do people craft a good, clear pitch like you just said? Yeah, well, self-promotion <laughs> doesn't fly very well in my experience. Um, I'm also really, really bad at it. So that's, I've never had that trouble with pitches. Um, 
I found what works best for me is really just three or fewer sentences saying, here's the briefest outline. Here's enough information to perhaps tantalize you. Um, give me the word, give me, give me an okay. And I will send you three to five paragraphs that will really explain in more depth what I'm talking about. And if you're interested after that, we can continue the conversation, but it saves me from having to spend too much time on a pitch that somebody doesn't want to read. And it saves them time from reading a pitch that they might not want to. And also I find, you know, even personally, you probably are the same. You're much more likely to read a three sentence email from a stranger than you are a six paragraph email from a stranger. So, so once that table is set, then they've already asked for it and they're much more likely. Yeah. So, you know, before we started the show, I was telling you our service of like, where we'll build other CEOs, a show like mine. Right. Mm-hmm. And by the way, anybody listening, if you want to take my free class on how to make a podcast like this, just reach out to me on LinkedIn or go to the contact form on, on Greystoke Media or Greystoke Networks and let us know. You can get in for free. We'll tell you how to do it without paying us. But um, you are much think- better at self-promotion than I am. <laughs> uh, but thinking about this concept of like, I have clients who would love to be in Fortune or Wired or Fast Company or places like this. And my guess is they're going to have an extra degree of scrutiny because of the concern of, is this going to get contaminated with self-promotion? Is this, you know, right? And so thinking about people who aren't a professional writer, would like to get in, but are potentially have this extra hurdle of they're not known as a reporter. Any, any extra guidance for people in that position? In my experience, a good idea is a good idea. Okay. Um, if, if you have any bona fides that you can, that you can point to as showing you're work. a good writer, that helps. Even, you know, I, if you haven't been in the New York Times, that's okay. But something that shows you're not a complete hack. But at the very least, I mean, this is, this is a no-risk offer. Like, just read my bigger pitch. And if the pitch is clear and well-written, then that itself says something. Um, because it's not easy to boil down you know, 6,000 words worth of, of story into 600 words of a pitch. So people yeah. who can do that effectively, I think, are selling themselves in the process. Yeah. No, I think that's great. I, I want to take the same question over to books. Um, when you think about your books that have sold the best, okay, what, what observations do you have or what principles uh, do you feel like you've learned for that that you're going to be applying to your next books? I don't think I'm the right person to answer that question because I okay. honestly never think about sales as I'm writing okay. a book. Um, I, I, I don't write for the market. I write for myself. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a sucker for a good story. I think I'm good at telling stories. And my whole goal in every book I write is to tell the story the best way I know how. And if that translates into sales, that's great. And if it's not, I usually blame the story. Like, you know, it's, I still blame myself for having picked the wrong story, but I, I don't think it's in the way I'm telling the story. Um, but then again, my publishers, these are all major publishers. They, they believed it was the right story enough to give me a bunch of money to write the book. So I couldn't have been too off. Um, sometimes it's just the marketplace. You know, I, I wrote two books about more or less a, a year or a, a number of years in the life of a given baseball team. And in between the time I sold the first book, the A's, A's book, and the time the second book, They Bled Blue, about the 1981 Dodgers came out, the market kind of shifted away from that genre of book and more toward um, idea books. You know, things like, oh, here's, here's this, the launch angle revolution in baseball swings. I'm going to write a book about that, that kind of stuff, as opposed to 
here's the story of a team during a time, um, which is one of my favorite stories to tell, but that's no real, no longer really the marketplace. So I, I guess to answer that part of your question, I'm no longer trying to sell those kinds of books. I mean, all, all it takes is one pitch rejected by everybody. And, you know, in, in my line of work, it takes months to write a solid book pitch, you know, they're 60 pages long and there's a lot of research involved. Um, and having one rejected means I'm, I'm really behind the gun when it comes to income that year. So, you know, I, my follow-up book to the Dodgers book was, was going to be another year in the life of a team and it never sold. And thus let's, let's shift our focus a little bit and, and, and put shoes on the kid's feet. Yeah. So when you think about how the market has shifted or what you think, you know, for people who aren't as in-depth in the book business, what do people not see coming down the pipe? What, what do you see from the inside that maybe the rest of us don't see in, in the world of books in the, in the near future? It's a good question. Um, this is one, one big benefit to having a capable agent, which, which is, you know, like for every book pitch I've written, I've bounced a hundred ideas off of it. And he said, that's good or that's bad, or that might be okay, but maybe you should tweak it this way or that way. Um, because he's, I mean, he's got his finger in every pot of the publishing industry. He knows, you know, every silo of every genre and what's selling and what's not selling. Um, so, so he's steered me in, in various ways. And I think it was a collaboration through him that I came to Kenny Loggins. Like he, he brought it to me with the understanding that like, Hey, you know, I, I know you're a music. Um, and even if this isn't your perfect project, um, you know, not knowing whether it was or not, he didn't really know my musical taste, but like, no matter how you feel about Kenny Loggins, this is going to be a great entree into that. So, yeah. so if the baseball books you're pitching don't sell, you always have this. And as it turns out, my, my next, my next book is my current book, which I'm working on is also an autobiography, although it's, it's more in the sports field than the music field. Yeah. So it helped, it helped both ways. Like suddenly it's, it's a music book that gives me some bona fides and it also is an autobiography, which shows I can do that as well. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, when you think about, um, the difference between, and I'm going to give you the same context, CEOs or, or investment fund managers or people listening today. Okay. Um, they're thinking, oh, I do want to do some more credibility marketing. I want to be, have a bigger presence on LinkedIn or Twitter or something like this. Okay. Um, you as, you know, a full-time professional of this, in your observation, what's the difference between a good story and a great story? I think a great story has a lot of applications beyond the story itself. Hmm. The, you know, my Dodgers book was a great story because Fernando Valenzuela was an interesting character at an interesting time in Los Angeles, but he was also the first Mexican star they were able to field after decades of trying and activated a whole, a whole swath of population. And Los Angeles at the time had a higher concentration of Mexicans than any place outside of Mexico City. They'd never been able to turn them into Dodgers fans. They'd long been seeking someone who could do that. Fernando came along and suddenly Fernando mania was, was sweeping the land. Um, at the same time as the Dodgers were playing in a ballpark in Chavez Ravine, which was land that had been stolen from a Mexican community in order to build that ballpark, like the, the layers were, were intense and, and, and profound. And, and I think for me, that's, that's what a great story can do. It can, it can tell a bigger picture while it's, while it's illustrating a smaller picture. Okay. So I want to, I want to break this down even further. Somebody's 
somebody's writing a story in, you know, a book, a LinkedIn post, wherever they're putting the story, what are questions they can ask themselves? How do they, how do they reflect on, is this telling a bigger story than just the story I'm telling? Well, I guess it goes back to the writer's motivation. Like, why do you want to tell the story? And if the reason is it was, you know, it was this very sweet moment that happened to me that kind of struck me in a way that I think people would appreciate. Maybe that's a smaller story, which does not make it less valid, especially if you're talking about a LinkedIn post. Like there's certainly space for that. Um, but, but yeah, um, means testing, it seems like a reasonable thing to do. How, what kind of outside factors were at play in the small story I'm telling? Um, so for example, one of the, one of the potential books in, in my hard drive, I would like to one day write involves the Bagel Bakers Union in New York City between the 1920s and the 1970s. And I want to write the book, or I, I was drawn to the book in part because I come from a bagel baking family. Grandfather owned the Brooklyn Bagel Bakery in Los Angeles for 50 years. Um, his, his father helped found the Bagel Bakers Union, which I didn't know until I started researching this. That was my motivation. But I think what makes it a really good story is suddenly we're talking about details of immigration, the Ukrainian immigrants who came in the early 1800s, early 1900s, who started the first bagel bakers, including my great grandfather, the, the labor unions, which helped make them powerful. Like it was a, it was a brutal profession, um, in, in the basements of big tenement buildings because their furnaces were hot enough to bake bagels, um, roaches and rats and, and sweltering conditions. Um, and terrible pay. It's why they started the union. And the, the story of starting the union was was very interesting. Um, immigrant groups clashing with each other. Part of my story is the mafia trying to take over the bagel trade in the 1950s. And these were two groups that came over at roughly the same time and lived right next to each other in the Lower East Side. There's so many bigger issues at play. And for, for me, that's what makes it such a truly fascinating story and one one that I very much want to tell. That's a kind of awesome, actually. Thanks. <laughs> the Bagel Mafia Wars. Okay. Man, I'll, I'll send you the book pitch if you want. This, this story just runs so deep and there's yeah. so many interesting details. Um, well, uh, how about this? Who is one of the, tells the story of like one of the most famous pro athletes that you interviewed in something fun or something funny or something, one of those kind of like get a peek behind the curtains of what it's like to, to have your life. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll go back to what we were previously talking about, about how, how people's reputations precede them. You know, Barry Bonds is, is widely known as, as a jerk of a fellow. Um, and, and sure enough, I was doing a piece, kind of a puff piece on until there's a cure day. Um, you know, the giants have an annual kind of AIDS awareness slash benefit day. And they were the first, first team in baseball to do that. Um, and in the very first until there's a cure day, uh, their opponents were the Colorado Rockies and the Giants came out on the field because, you know, they'd been prepped for it. I, I, I don't think the Rockies had, at least they hadn't adequately. And it was Barry Bonds who walked across the field and got the Rockies to join the Giants on the field in support of AIDS awareness. A, a class move, right? So I'm writing this story and I, I walk up to him and, and it has been well documented. Bonds had a recliner in the clubhouse. Everyone else had their regular stools. He had a recliner and two lockers and he would nap and like he ran the place. 
Um, and justifiably so. He was the biggest superstar in all of baseball. And so he's in his recliner and I, I walk up and I ask him the softball questions like, hey, I'm doing a piece on Until There's a Cure Day. I just want to know, like, what led you to, to go to the Rockies dugout and, and get them to join you guys? There are a million ways he could have answered that question, making himself look good with literally a sentence or two. And he sat there in silence for a good 20 seconds and finally looked up at me and said, are you still here? I'm like, okay, <laughs> that, that's Barry Bonds. I guess, I guess to thine own self be true. Uh, oh, man. Yeah, yeah, it happened. It happened. Um, at the same time, I mean, he was electric to watch and, and he brought a, a ton of good things to San Francisco. So I can't, com I can't really complain too much about the guy. And from all I've understood, ever since he retired and, you know, got off his various um, chemical concoctions, he's, he's been a much nicer guy. <laughs> okay, let's tell the reverse then. Who is one of the nicest name Brown pros that you interacted with? Oh man, um, I mean, nice is relative. I think, I think in my line of work, patience goes as long goes as far as niceness. But yeah, nice slash patient slash interesting. That combination is probably Dusty Baker, who, depending on when this comes out, people can watch in in the American League Championship Series right now, managing the Houston Astros. Um, but the guy was an all-star outfielder for the Braves and the Dodgers and the Giants and the A's for, for short portions of his time. Um, and then became the manager of the Giants for many years, which is where I first got to know him. Um, and he's a key, a key part in my Dodgers book. And so we spent a day hanging out at his house and looking through his trophy rooms. And the guy has so many stories and is so willing to share them and so willing to be open. I mean, we'll go back to one of your early, earlier questions. Um, callback. Um, Dusty was part of baseball's big cocaine trial in the 1980s. He was kind of one of the more cursory figures, but his name came up. He was, he was listed there in court. Um, and I had to ask him about it because my book was about Los Angeles in 1981, like the height of the cocaine epidemic. Like, of course, he, that's part of the story. Um, the Dodgers had one player, uh, a pitcher named Steve Howe, who was, ended up suspended nine times over the course of his career for drug use and eventually died after his career was over. Um, so I've, of course I've got to talk to Dusty about it. And because he's such an upstanding guy, he answered every question. Um, and, and he answered it in a way that, I don't know how to say this, a way that didn't make him look bad because he owned it so thoroughly, right? He understood his behavior. He understood his motivation, why he did it, the time he did it, the effect it had on himself and his teammates, and he'd put it all into context. And he was able to do that with me. And, and, and that's a good takeaway, right? It's the time. It's 1981 LA. Everyone's doing cocaine. Yeah, I didn't do it too much. But yeah, I did it. And yeah, some players on that team had some good times. Um, and that, you know, we talk about a great story. That led into a different story about how Steve Howe, who had a genuine drug pop problem that had nothing to do with Dusty or his cocaine use, um, the team management tried to tie them together and blame some of the African-American players for Steve Howe, the white player's drug problem. And that leads to a whole other kettle of fish that, you know, Dusty understandably resents. And, and there's another great story to tell that you might not even have known was there when you started the interview. Yeah, that's great. It's great to hear those kind of stories. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to go back to, uh, one of my first questions here. Uh, 
what haven't we covered today that would be fun to cover? I don't think we've talked nearly enough about backcountry skiing. <laughs> uh, well, in that case, the answer is Utah and Northern Japan, because Northern Japan never stops snowing and they don't have those avalanche layers. So you can ride stuff you should never be able to, you should never think about riding. And then Utah, because it's been proven to have the lowest moisture content per square foot of snow. And that's why it has that like gun smoke powder, champagne powder. Mm -hmm. That's just so absurdly fluffy. It's like, it's more like floating than surfing. So there's the best powder days ever were, were at Alton. I mean, I, I, I love skiing in Utah. Um, and, and I'll tell you, like we were planning a 50th birthday trip, got waylaid by the pandemic. So it's now it's just kind of conceptual in the future to either heliski somewhere or go to Japan. And I've, I've queried a lot of people to see which one they would do. And the answer has pretty universally be, been Japan. What would your answer be? So I only have two bucket list items in my life at this point, and it's uh, that are not family related, okay? And it's snowboard Northern Japan and heliski Alaska. So it's a tough question for me. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, Japan is fascinating. I mean, it's just, I mean, Alaska is obviously just those enormous mountains and it's, there's something there that isn't other places, right? Um, but I, if I literally could only, you know, it was my last day of life and I got to go to one or the other, I would probably choose the Japan because it's so playful. Like it's so, you watch these videos, you talk to the people who have been, and it's just so playful to launch so big into like the ultimate foam pit of who cares if you land or not. You know, like they just, it's just so much great snow. I mean, just like, the, you know, when people say bottomless powder, it's usually total hyperbole, you know? And that's one of the places in the world where it's like kind of true or can be. Well, yeah. You go to pole plant as a skier and you just, you just keep leaning down because you just keep going. there's nothing yeah. to, and there's no bottom. Yeah. Yeah. Someday. Um, All right. I'll, I'll see you on the slopes of Japan. Okay. Deal. Uh, I, I want to talk a little bit more, maybe we'll end on this, on the book business. Um, any advice for people getting in the big book business or early in, in their life in the book business of, of trying to be an author, trying to be uh, a financially profitable author, things like this, any career advice, any, any thoughts there? Well, you just asked two distinct questions. There's trying to be an author and there's trying to be a financially profitable author. Those are two very different things. Let's start with um, the second one then. What, when, well, one thing I've learned from running the Pandemic Baseball Book Club for the last three years is that there is a massive difference between the big publishers and the small publishers. Um, the big publishers obviously put out fewer titles. They have to be more focused because they're laying out much bigger money for advances. Smaller publishers generally give no advances. Um, put out many more titles hope, in the hopes that, you know, several will hit and finance the rest of them. Um, usually put less into the editing and the, the graphic design. Um, the books, you know, are, I certainly will not say the books are bad, but there's obviously less care given to them than, than the major publishers. Um, and it's also easier to get that kind of contract. If you're willing to work with, for, no, for no advance, and are willing to put in a lot of work on your own in terms of the editing process um, and especially the promotion process, um, then you're much more likely to get a contract. And I think as far as your audience is concerned, 
one big change over the last 10 years is social media presence. If you've got half a million Twitter followers, you are much more likely to get a book deal, you know, independent of any other detail than you would be if you if you didn't have. Can, can we talk about this? Can we talk about, you know, uh, your YouTube channel and, and this audience and these hundred authors? Like, how has that been beneficial to your to both your quality of life and to your career? Uh, it's been a giant drain on my quality of life because it is a big ass volunteer job that does not pay me anything to do. Um, but, but it's been very gratifying in as much as I've been able to connect with, you know, a hundred authors, you know, only a small handful of whom I knew before. Um, and we've kind of in the process realized that there's a community there that, that people want that didn't exist before. You know, many, many of our ranks work for newspapers or magazines. I mean, not the majority, but many, um, and several have non-journalism jobs. Um, and so everyone has their own individual community where they started from, but, but the baseball writing, baseball book writing community did not exist. And so now, you know, now we're all talking among each other and supporting each other's work. And it's, it's really nice. It's, it's gratifying in that way. Um, it would be nicer if it was a paid position and something yeah. I could afford to really sink my teeth into as opposed to bidding in when I can. But do you know, uh, do you know Seth Godin's book, Tribes? Uh, I, I know of it. I've not read it. Okay. I mean, it, you really have done that where you've collected these people who have such a common interest. Um, my guess, and tell me what you think here, but my guess is if you now come out with another baseball book, you've got a lot more friends to talk to about it who could possibly get the word out for you. You've got an audience to promote it to. Is that a good guess there? Absolutely. Well, I mean, the pandemic baseball book club audience is one thing, but if you combine everyone's individual audiences with that, then you really have something, something massive. And, and that's helpful. Well, and my guess, the goodwill with these hundred authors where you, you've done a favor for them, you've gotten them exposure first and it wasn't transactional. It was like from the heart. It was like, I like you, let's be friends. If yeah. you then later have a book come out and you say, Hey, would you, would you have a look at this? Do you know, do you, do you think anybody in your, in your circle would be, have interest in it? Like, their willingness to put out a social media post for you or to do things like that seems like, you know, make your friend, you know, make friends and put some deposits in the emotional bank account uh, before, before you ever need to make an ask. Absolutely. That's, that's completely accurate. And I, I think part of it is, you know, especially with the higher profile authors, when, when I contact them first and say, hey, would you like to be a member of the Pandemic Baseball Book Club? Um, on more than one occasion, there's been a little wariness and like, what's the catch? Yeah, yeah. Like, there is no catch. Like, it doesn't cost you anything. Like, just participate. Be interviewed. Interview an author. Like, we are what we put it. That's pretty much the end of the end of the pitch. Um, at, at that point, everyone's enthusiastic because because it's it is just another opportunity to talk about your book in front of people who care about this. When you when you think about people who um, are interested in something like that you know, gathering a tribe, doing interviews, scratching somebody else's back first. What would you say, what would you say are the biggest benefits in your mind for doing it? The more people you know, the, the better off you are. And it does take a village unless, unless you're the king of the village, but even then you need, you need a village around you. And just, just a couple of weeks ago, I ended up blurbing a book of an author who I didn't know at all prior to this process and who writes good books. I was happy to do it. Um, and I know I'm not the only one going back and forth. Um, you know, knowing, knowing people at newspapers and magazines across the country now is helpful. 
You know, so, some of these authors I knew kind of on a cursory, cursory um, front before, and, and now we've exchanged many emails and it's, it's much easier to, to write them and say, hey, do you have an idea about this thing I'm working on? Or do you have a suggestion for a contact or a source or whatever it is? Um, and, and the more people you know as an author, the easier things are. And especially, especially if, in as much as you're not looking to them for direct help, but you're looking for an additional source. Like, hey, where, what, where did you do your research for this thing? Like that kind of information is easy to pass along as long as you have the ability to ask the right question. You know, so I think about this because with my show, like, again, consistently, like we'll have like a public company CEO and like the column team is like, is there a fee associated with this appearance? Or you know, like, that's how like, we're like, and we're like, no, there's no, like, we just, like, we just want really great people. That's all we want, you know? And it lets me start like genuine friendships with some of these guests, you know, that like last years, right? And I think not being transactional, it actually makes it more fun where I'm like, I'm literally just trying to scratch their back and trying to profile what they're awesome at. And, and like, you know, I try to be specific of only having people on the show that I genuinely want to learn something from, you know? And uh, like, so right now I've been calling someone back, hey, we're just launching a new website for this. Can you give me some advice? And I've got like really, really senior CEOs of, of companies that do hundreds of millions of dollars, give me a half hour of their time for free to give me advice. But like, what would that have cost me in consulting hours if I had to pay for it? Right? Exactly. If you sent like a pro form of business letter, asking oh, the yeah. same question. I could have never have gotten on that calendar, right? And like, but like you, I do think about it almost like dating or like sales of the like, like incremental. You know what I mean? Like you don't, don't go for the jugular. Like when you, when you, at college, if you see the cute girl, you walk over, you probably just don't go straight in for the kiss. You probably talk first, see if she'll go on a couple date. You know what I mean? Is that how it works? Man, yeah, I, fairly, I ran that all fairly. Yeah. Um, but I liked what you said about like starting small and, and making it an ask that's easy to say yes. And like, you know, get these repetitions and the familiarity grows. And, and my guess is by you organizing it and like, they probably would be helpful to anybody else in the club, but by you being the one who's organizing it, you almost get like a little extra halo effect of kind of being like the glue helping keep, to, helping keep it together. Is that fair? Yeah, it's fair. It, it is fair. And I haven't had a baseball book come out apart from that, that one that had come out before we even started. So I haven't really gotten the afterglow of it. Yeah, saw theory. I'm happy to pass it along. And I think yeah. the, other, the other factor of what you're talking about is that I tend to say yes to everything that I can. In, unless there's an actual genuine schedule conflict, I pretty much don't turn anybody down. Um, with the understanding, I'm not going to make any money, off, right? My 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 litmus is if you're not making money off me, I don't need to make money off you, right? This is a, a free podcast, of course. If we're doing a live event, you want me to show up for, and the tickets are free or it's a benefit, of course I don't want to be paid. If you're going to be charging a lot for me to show up, then of course maybe give me a taste. But but for the vast majority of things, like yeah, I'll give you my time. And hopefully yeah. it'll, it'll pay its way back at some point. Yeah, that's fun. Uh, where are the best places for people to find out about books or, uh, or follow you on social media? I'm at Jason Turbo at Twitter. That's J-A-S-O-N-T-U-R-B-O-W, like the end, W at the end. Um, and at JasonTurbo.com, I've got links to all my books. Uh, I've got contact information on there if you want to get hold of me. Um, I, I tend to make myself very easy to find. Uh, my Twitter DMs are open. Like there's, there's all kinds of ways to, to get hold of me. That's awesome. Uh, well, what do you want to leave with? Do you have a limerick? I don't know. <laughs> uh, this has been a great conversation. I, I, I think you've, you've 
you've covered some some really interesting stuff that that I don't usually talk about. I think it seemed like you went in with the goal of of being unique, and man, you you sure have. <laughs> you know, I, I will talk about that for one second. Is so I get this comment usually like after the camera's off, like in about one minute when I say, okay, the interview's over, we'll cut it off here and we chat for a second, right? I get comments like that. And I think it's because so many other folks, they machine gun the guests with questions. They've got this question lined up and that question and this question. And my thought is more like, if you and I are having fun, then people watching this or people listening to this, they kind of almost get to like be a voyeur of our fun. Like they kind of get to have fun with us by being part of the conversation, even though they're just listening in. And so like one of the easy ways for me to have fun is to ask stuff that I genuinely want to know the answer to, not because it's like, it makes sense to be on a question list. And like, it is a little tough. We get like, again, people who, you know, CEOs of major companies or people who have like, whose people have people. Do you know what I mean? Right. And they're like, they're really, they're trying to be so prepared for the boss. And they're like, can you give us the list of questions? It's like, no, I have no idea what the questions are going to be. Cause my next question is going to come from the last thing they said. You know, I'm like, I try to be I'm like, oh, it's generally going to be about, you know, what are your principles of leadership and innovation that have helped you in your career? What could you have not learned other than doing that? You know, like, and then I don't ask any of the things that I said I was going to ask, you know, because you yeah. have a conversation. And, and this, this goes back to, again, one of our earlier topics, which is running down a list of questions is no fun and it doesn't give you the good stuff. It's the conversation that gives you the good stuff. So when, when I go into a meeting with a ball player, especially for a book, you know, I've got a dossier, literally 20 pages worth of questions that I've piled up. Um, and I will get to all those questions, but 75% of them are just through conversation. Like I won't even read them off the list. I'll just get to them through, through natural, organic back and forth. And that's, that's so much better than any other way you can do it. Yeah. Uh, it's been fun to have you on the show. I, I appreciated your answers. They're definitely thoughtful. Well, thanks for having me on, Jess. Really nice to talk to you. Bye, everyone.